0: The 13th uh, son of Jacob was called Glendon. I'm kidding. You can put up the slides uh, and uh, let everyone know. Dan the man. So we are on this amazing series called Children Who Change the World. And uh, if you kind of knew, let me give you the thread that's running through the series as you look at different uh, sons of Jacob. There were 12 sons of Jacob. This is the kind of underlying thought. God's nature is a nature of blessing. It's in God's nature to bless. Does that make sense? So Genesis chapter 2, God makes the amazing earth, this beautiful creation, mankind, his crowning kind of cherry on the cake creation in his image, and he blesses them, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. So God blesses mankind from the beginning. Genesis chapter 12, God appears to Abraham, this pagan kind of guy wandering around, and he says, Abraham, I will surely bless you and make your name great, and your descendants, your children will outnumber the stars in the sky. Now, Abraham had no kids at that point, and he was 80-something, pretty old. Through your children, God says to him, the whole world will be blessed. So God's plan is through His children, through the people of God, to bring blessing to the world. That make sense? And so we're looking at these children of Jacob, looking at their names and what their names mean, and trying to learn how we can be a blessing to the world that God wants us to be. You with me? Okay, cool. One of my favorite promises to Abraham is found in Genesis chapter 15, and it's another one of these promises, another one of these blessings, and God says to him, I will be your very great reward. Ah, God, me, myself, ah, my presence, my joy, my peace, my word, my life, I will be your very great reward. In other words, the greatest reward for Abraham's life is not the blessing, it's not the stuff, it's not this multi-generational family. God himself is the ultimate blessing for you and I. And that's what God wants us to do, to take... Him, His presence, His love to the world. You might remember Ed preached last week. He said, um, Jesus died to provide salvation for all of mankind. Jesus paid a price. He died so that salvation could be provided for all mankind. But we as the church, we have a sacrifice. We have a price to pay to deliver that salvation to the world. Remember that? That makes sense? And so this is the great mission of the church. It's not to huddle around together on a Sunday and enjoy amazing worship and hear a great sermon. It's not just about that. It's not just about connecting in life groups or young adults or youth and and making deep friendships. The mission of the church is not the comfort of the believer. The mission of the church is to grow, to disciple, to mature all of us. So that through us, God can bless the world with his presence, with his word. And so we are to take this gospel, the good news, that God loves poor, wretched, pitiful sinners like me and like you. And he wants to rescue them and save them and give them a hope and a future. We are becoming, God's people, we are becoming children who change the world. So let's read... In Genesis chapter 30, we're going to read about Dan and how he got his name. Genesis 30 and from verse 1. So Jacob married Rachel. That was his plan. But he, on the wedding night, his father-in-law did a sneaky, and he ended up marrying the sister, the not-so-attractive sister, Leah. And then eventually, he worked another seven years and married Rachel. Now, this is some time later. When Rachel saw... That she was not bearing Jacob any children. Remember, she's the second wife. She became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Yo, this woman needs some serious medication. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, like on my behalf. She can be like a surrogate. And I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this vindication, she named him Dan. Now you can put up that kind of, table of all the different children of Jacob I don't know if you can read that but Leah was wife number one and the first four kids that Jacob had were with Leah so Reuben the little numbers and brackets that's the birth order so Reuben number one Simeon number two Levi number three Judah number four and then Rachel's like hey my sisters had four kids give me kids or I'm gonna die because it was quite an important thing in that time to have kids and so Rachel couldn't have kids, but she gave to Jacob Bilhah, her servant. So Dan was born. He was the fifth born. His mom was Bilhah. And then after him came Naphtali. And then Leah said, hey, I'm not having any more kids. It's not fair. She couldn't have kids at that point. And so she gave to Jacob Zippah, her servant. And so Gad and Asher, number seven and eight, were born to Leah's servant. And then... Leah started having kids again. Issachar, Zebulun, and Dina, or Dinah, a little girl. And then Rachel, right towards the end, Joseph was born and Benjamin born to Rachel. So that's kind of the, the family, not tree, the family table. <laughs> it's kind of complicated. I was trying to picture what would family life have looked like for this family? So when Dan arrived, he was number five, right? Four brothers. And by the end of the family making. There were 13 kids, one dad, four moms, who were jealous and fighting like days of our lives. Think that. Can you imagine how these poor kids grew up? I mean, it must have been wild. And poor Dan, number five, he's like born in the middle of the batch. And I can sympathize with Dan. I was number two of three. I was a middle child. And middle children are overlooked. We've forgotten about. I got lost in the shops one day because I was the middle child. We don't tend to rock the boat. We're very compliant, and so if you try and find much about Dan, you won't find much about Dan, because I think he's a middle child. So I get Dan. I get him. But his name means to judge, and to kind of like to judge like an umpire, to kind of rule on right or wrong, who's out or you in or out, to contend or to minister judgment. Genesis 49, verse 16, Jacob's blessing his kids right before he dies. He says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And So, Dan means to judge. And when when Rachel says, God has vindicated me, that word means to judge. It's like Dan in the sentence. And so, the tribe of Dan are about judging. The most famous person from the tribe of Dan, besides Dan, the man, was a guy called Samson who led Israel as a judge in the time of the judges. So, a random unrelated fact for the morning. So, when someone is judging, they are making decisions based on evidence or facts. They're making a choice. They're choosing someone who's right and someone who's wrong based on the evidence presented before them, if it was like a court of law. So, Dan means to judge, to, to choose between right and wrong, or to choose between guilty and innocent. Does that make sense? And so the angle we're going to take today, looking at Dan and the meaning of his name, which means to judge, this is the angle we're going to look at. How do we confront the world without being confrontational? How do we confront the world without being confrontational? So you're welcome to shout out your answers for this part. How do we as people, just in general, how do we judge people? Whenever we meet someone for the first time, we make a snap judgment based on looks. I'll give you an example of that. I was on an airplane this week traveling for work down to George. Got off the plane, waiting for the, the people to stand up and get your bags out. And this guy behind me, I suddenly turned around and saw him. Tall, strong guy, looks like he spends a lot of time in the gym. Look a bit like Mandla. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> and like really expensive clothing on, like the expensive name brand clothing. He's got all kinds of gold jewelry and like diamond earrings. and dark glasses on. I'm like, is this a movie star? Who's this guy? Tattoos on his arm. And I, as he turns around, I see on his neck here, there's this big tattoo, the Lamborghini logo. I'm like, I had a Lamborghini. I would also put a tattoo in my neck. It's a snap judgment. How else do we judge people? How they speak? Where they live? Hey, nice to meet you, Vim. What? You're from Brakpan. Oh, I don't, know, I don't know where Vim lives, actually. He's not BrackPan. <laughs> if you're from BrackPan, I'd love to meet you. I'm sure you're amazing. And I, I had a bad experience driving through BrackPan, so I've sadly judged BrackPan. But we, we, uh, we judge people by how much stuff they have, what they do for a living. Are oh, you a lawyer? Oh. Like you automatically put a whole bunch of things on them that maybe aren't there. We judge people for their lifestyle choices, for their religion. And so this topic of judging is quite a big one, because there's this prevailing attitude in the world, no one should judge me. How dare you tell me what's right and wrong for me, for my life? What gives you the right to tell me how to live? And so there's a sense that no one should be judging anyone. But if you look in the world, it's probably never been so judgmental as it is despite this desire not to be judged. But as Christians, how should we be judging? Jesus says, firstly, take out the log from your own eye before you remove the speck of dust from your brother's eye. He says, with the same measure that you use when you judge, that's the same measure God will use when he judges you. So be very careful to judge. We shouldn't be judging at all, actually. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives some kind of guidelines. If there's interpersonal conflict between Christians, how to sort that out? You do it personally. He says, if you come to the altar to give your gift to God, but you realize your brother's got something against you, go and be reconciled. Don't go and gossip first. Go and be reconciled to your brother, then come back and worship the Lord. So there are some guidelines for how Christians need to work stuff out. But when it comes to the rest of the world... We have to be quite careful with living out this thing of judging people, right? We can't simply become like the world and how it lives, and we can't be quiet when people reject God's way of doing things. Why? Why shouldn't we be quiet? Well, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor, you want what is best or worst for them. What's best for them if you're loving them the same way you love yourself? The best way for people to live is according to God's right path. So we have to speak up against the world. So how do we show the world that it's wrong and still be loving towards people? How do we confront others in a way that doesn't make them feel condemned or judged or inferior, doesn't cause an argument, in a world that's immoral and godless, How do we make a stand without making enemies? That's what I want to try and look at this morning. So, number one, how do we do this? Live differently. Live differently. As believers, we are called to live differently to the world. If your life, decisions, speech looks the same as your unsaved neighbor, there's some questions to ask. We're called to live to a different standard. We've been called out of darkness and into light. And we are to live not according to how everyone else lives, just going with the flow, like running with the lemmings, jumping off the cliff. We're not called to live like society lives. We're also not called to live based on our feelings. Well, I feel like doing this, it feels good for me, it feels right, therefore I will do it. If we try and live by our feelings, we will not serve God No, we're called to live according to God's Word. We've, uh, over the years, done a little bit of pre-marriage counseling, and I've not married hundreds of people like Ed, as he said last week, but married about 10 or 12 couples over the last few years. And as part of our pre-marriage counseling, we sometimes get the chance to share a bit of our own story, how we came to faith, how we met each other, how God spoke, etc. And one of the things that we sometimes get to share, and it's it shocks people. We say, the first time that Candace and I kissed was on our wedding day, after we were pronounced man and wife. And they're like, oh, how could you do that? You're so legalistic. And, and it's, it's not that we're trying to make people feel bad that their story doesn't look like our story, but the reality is our convictions. We wanted to preserve all intimacy for marriage. And the very real aspect of, if we do start kissing, the temptation to... Not stop there. It's very real. So we don't share our story to, to make people feel bad, but often people don't know there's another way. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. In His Word, God has laid out a right path, righteousness, a right path for how we are to live for how we are to do marriage, for how we are to run our business. There's a right path for how we are to parent. There's a right path for how we are to run our finances. There's a right path for how we are to speak, act, think, our heart, our motives. God has a right path planned out for every part of our lives. And Jesus says, seek that path and implement it in your life. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So the Bible tells us how we should live our lives, but so many Christians treat the Word of God as optional. It's a nice to have. Oh, you know, one day when I become a spiritual Christian, then I will tithe more than 2%, whatever the particular topic God's putting His finger on. But God has a right path. We are to live differently. We are to live according to His Word. And so, when we do that, our life and our decisions will be noticed by others. Why? Because they're different. They will influence other people if other people can see them. If you're a closet Christian and no unsaved people ever get to see your life, then your life will not have an impact on them. I've had the um, wonderful experience of, of making a very good friend in the workplace, a colleague, and he's not saved, but we've become good friends over the last seven or eight years. And I've got to share often with him, at least every month, how I pray, what God is saying, how, what we're doing at church. Even though he's unsaved, he knows that this is a big part of our lives. What is, how's the church going, he will ask. And the one time he asked me, um, I told him, hey, I, this has happened a few years ago. Um, a big international firm tried to headhunt me. And I said to him, hey, Greg, just so you know, this particular company has approached me and they've asked X and Y and Z. And he said, Did you take the job? I said, No, I prayed about it and God told me not to. What? You should have. <laughs> like, no, that's not what God told me, right? So he can see I make my decisions differently than the world. The one time he asked me, So Glennon, what time? Because maybe I look tired, I don't know. What time do you wake up in the morning? And I said, Roger, what time? what time? Not early. I wake up early. No, what time? Uh, 4, 4.30? What do you do at 4.30? And I make coffee, and you know, I wake up, and I wake Candace up gently, and then I read the Bible and I pray. Because like sometimes it feels awkward to describe your quiet time with an unsaved person. And he's like, sure, you read the Bible and pray. Yeah, like, oh, I try to do it every day. And then, <laughs> three months later, I think, four months later, we were at a company conference together, and we shared a room. And so he knew this guy, Glennon, wakes up early and reads the Bible and prays. And maybe he was worried. I don't know. But he says, Glennon, what time are you setting your alarm tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, uh, early. <laughs> I said, I'll try not to wake you up. I'll make coffee. I'll just sit in the bed. I'll have my iPad, and you know, I'll just I'll be quietish. And so I did. I woke up early. I got some coffee. Read the Bible in my bed or my iPad, and kind of journaled and prayed by typing. And he wakes up and he says, Hey, what did you read in the Bible? And like when people can see into your life and your life is different, they can start to take note. We can confront the world without being confrontational. Jesus said, let your light shine before men. Let your good deeds shine before men. Christians should be the happiest, friendliest, kindest, most generous, loving people on the planet. They should be. You should be. We should be. When people see our lives, they should see a hope that goes beyond this world, an eternal hope that we live for something bigger, that we don't sweat the earth things. So what if the stock market crashes and you lose half your investments? It's just money. It's just stuff. You can't take it with you. But there's something that won't change, an inheritance that will never spoil or fade or perish, Peter says. That's what I'm living for not the stuff of the world. When we demonstrate that we live by a higher set of values, we show people Christ. When you forgive in the workplace, instead of trying to get even, that's different. People will notice. When you prefer others rather than clamoring for position, or instead of like the rest of your colleagues, you don't stab people in the back to make an extra sale. You live differently and you show the world something different. It's so number one, live differently. Number two, speak the truth in love. I'm not sure who this, is, this quote is from. It might be uh, Augustine. It might be St. Francis, I think. You've probably heard it. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And that's wonderful. Our lives should speak. We should live differently, okay? But then I would counter that and challenge that thinking by saying, the only person who could probably claim that 100% was Jesus, who lived a sinless life. He spoke a lot about the gospel. He confronted people a lot about their lifestyle and about truth. And so, if Jesus needed to speak a whole lot about the gospel, how much more we? It's not just living our lives, living a holy life, that's a part of it. We need to be able to speak about our faith, speak about our God, speak about what He's doing, how He's working in our lives, and then our life can back up our message, more powerful. So we must live according to His Word, but it's not just that. We have to speak the truth in love. In my home, I have three, some people call them children, I like to call them sometimes policemen. Got a whole brigade. And they're always telling me, this one did this wrong, and this one had more sweets than me. And like, kids have a very acute sense of right and wrong and justice and fairness. Like, there can be like two millimeters difference in the Coke between one glass and the next. And it's like, it's crazy. We are not meant to be policemen, pointing out every wrong thing everyone does. Because that just makes them defensive. and doesn't lead to a gospel coming in a healthy way. We shouldn't be condemning. We shouldn't take a superior attitude. Well, I'm, you know, I go to church every Sunday. I'm holier than thou. We can't talk to people in that way if we're wanting to bring God's love to them. I think we are to proclaim truth, but not try and prove it. Because when you try and prove something, it ends up in a fight almost every time. We are to proclaim truth. We are to know the biblical basis for our faith and how we live and make a stand for what we believe, proclaiming truth, not always being known for what we don't agree with. As a church, we don't agree with smoking. We don't agree with drinking. We don't agree with this and this and this. We've become known for what we're against. If you look at Jesus' teachings, I, I don't see that. We should be known for what we are for. We proclaim truth without needing to prove it. We need to be pretty brave about that. We need some conviction. We need faith. We need to know God's Word. And here's the challenge, because as Christians, we think we know a lot. But the world doesn't need our opinions. And many Christians are very opinionated, but it's just their opinions. The world needs truth, not my and your opinions about stuff. We don't want to be a people that are all about this issue and that issue and this thing. We have to proclaim truth without needing to prove it. So here are some helpful tips. When you are speaking to people, depending on the conversation, don't be weird. Write this in bold, underline it. Don't be weird. Use normal English words that you use every day, okay? So when someone says to you, hey, I'm going on holiday this weekend, okay, cool, travel safe, no need for that, I'm covered by the blood. That might be true, uh, that, that's true, but no one knows what you're talking about. Even most Christians probably won't understand that. It's good to laugh, but, I, but, but sometimes our words can be a stumbling block just because we use the Christian jargon all the time. And when you're speaking to unsaved people that don't know these things, when Jesus spoke, He spoke in parables and pictures Farming language, agriculture, birds, like it was normal everyday language, we should be the same. Sometimes you might, this happens to me every now and then, you get asked to pray, like I was at a wedding a few years ago, and they said, I was, I was marrying the couple, and they said, oh, you're the pastor, you should pray for grace. Like, I think I was the only Christian in the whole building. And so, when you get an opportunity to pray, maybe, this happens at work every now and then, even though we're not a Christian company, um, sometimes... Just get asked to, to pray, you know? Make the most of the opportunity. Don't pull out the, like, don't be unprepared, because this is what happens. We're unprepared, we get caught off guard, because we're asked five minutes before people are eating. Don't pull out your standard religious one-liner, dear Lord. Rubber dub dub thanks for the grub. Amen. <laughs> Look, it's not a bad prayer to teach your kids as they're learning to pray, but... <laughs> But when you get a chance to speak to people, make the most, don't make a long prayer with long words and King James English, because again, no one's going to understand you. Don't speak in an American televangelist accent when you pray. It's just going to be weird because then you change your normal voice afterwards and people are like, wow, what was that? Make it sincere, make it meaningful. If you listen to people pray, you can tell how close they are to God. You want to show that to people if you are praying. Even if it's saying grace, be able to show that intimacy that you have. Another practical tip don't Bible bash. Another practical tip uh, practice speaking about your faith in a natural way. Do this with your kids if you have kids, because kids, you can't trick them. You can't use long words. They'll be like, what does that word mean? So then you have to explain. So practice speaking about your faith in a normal, everyday way, like you'd speak about the new restaurant that you found that you can't wait to tell people about. I don't have one, so don't look for any recommendations. 1 Peter chapter 3 says this, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. People will see that we will have hope. They'll say, how can you have this hope? So be prepared, Peter says, to give an answer. But then he says, but do this with arguing and fighting. No, sorry, let me read that again. But do this with gentleness and respect. Peter never says take a hardcover Bible and bash. (laughs) He says with gentleness and respect. That's how we talk to people. Sometimes I find it helpful if I know I'm going to have a conversation with an unsaved person. I will often pray for myself, for the conversation, for the person, and allow God to lead you in the conversation. I often pray, Lord, give me the right question to ask, because they're not going to listen to my barrage, my lecture. This is right, this is right, this is what the Bible says, you should do that. People don't listen. They get defensive if you tell them they're wrong all the time. But Jesus had a way of asking questions that would unlock even the hardest hearts. Go and study the questions of Jesus and say, Lord, help me to ask questions that will just start the person thinking differently. And lastly this morning, live differently, speak the truth in love, and thirdly, trust the outcome to God. Trust the outcome to God. Our part is to follow Jesus, to obey Him, to worship Him through His Word, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, and we must leave space for God to work. We must leave room for the Holy Spirit to do something. If we do everything and try and control everything, there's no room for God. And when there's no room for God, God doesn't show up. We have to leave room for God to be God, to challenge them through a dream, to... Um, something that you say that you might not think is the most important thing, God will get that thing in their heart. You want God to have room to do some kind of intervention or a breakthrough or a miracle. But if you don't leave room for God, God can't be God. We have to leave space for Him. And so we, we ought to live by faith, not by sight. In other words, we might have conversations and we can't see stuff, fruit coming out of them, We have to live by faith. God is at work. Even though I didn't see that person get healed when I prayed for them, we have to believe God is at work. We live by faith, not by sight. You look at Hebrews chapter 11 there, it's like this, the hall of fame of these ancient saints who lived by faith. And it says, by faith, Abraham did this, and by faith, Moses did this, and by faith. It's just like stirring passage to read right at the end, the last verse, I think it's verse 39, it says this. These all, all of these famous dudes, and ladies, because they're ladies there too, were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised. Think about that. You and I are going to have conversations, going to interact with the world, going to confront them in a way that doesn't turn them away from the gospel, but we might not see fruit. We might not see what God is doing, and we need to be okay with that. So, we have to kind of um, be careful of trying to figure out the results of a certain interaction. Is this what God wanted? We might feel sad that we shared our faith and they didn't get saved in that moment. We might feel rejected if we invited them to church the fifth time and they said no again. We might think, oh, I've failed. I'm a bad Christian, I'm a bad evangelist. No one comes to church when I invite them. We've got to be careful of that, friends, because we live by faith, not by sight. And the results are up to God, not up to us. Sometimes we can blame God. Why didn't you get them saved, Lord? Look at all I did. Sometimes we blame ourselves. Oh, and this has happened to me over and over again. You come away from a conversation, the next day you're replaying the conversation with this unsaved person in your mind. You're like, oh, I wish I'd said that scripture. Why didn't Holy Spirit, you tell me that at that point? Because that would have been the kicker, the punchline, whatever. Often you think, "Oh, I was too assertive. I was too aggressive. I argued too much." Like God is way bigger than our what we think are our mistakes. But don't blame yourself. Trust the results up to God. I'm going to end with a scripture, John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus says, "I am the vine, and you are the branches." If you remain in me, if you abide in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Fruit is the result of abiding, not striving. Fruit is the result of abiding in Jesus, being connected to Him, not working hard, not striving, not all our efforts. And abiding... Is not the same because abiding, I must remain, I must just be with Jesus. Abiding is not the same as praying, praying, and praying, and then sitting back waiting, and then whatever happens, that must have been God's will. I think that's a bit of a defeatist attitude. Well, I prayed and I waited. I abided. I remained in God and this happened. This must have been God's will. I don't know if that's how it works all the time. You see, to remain in Christ, to abide in Christ means we're connected. What is on Christ's heart becomes on my heart. What Jesus is doing should be what I'm doing. You know what Jesus said? I only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. Okay? So to remain in Christ doesn't mean that we're inactive. No, I'm just a spirit. I'm an intercessor. All I do is pray. I don't know if that function is in the Bible as we often think it is. But if we're connected to Christ, we see what He's doing in me, number one. What is God doing in me? Let me attend to those things. And what is He doing in my kind of sphere of influence, in my workplace, in my neighborhood, with the next door neighbor, with the guys over the road, with my life group, with my friends group, with my after hours hobby, whatever it might be. What is God doing? And we co-labor with Christ to see His kingdom come. And so... Abiding doesn't